Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Courtney Turner, who is a podcast and radio host and also a writer and a aerial acrobatic artist. Might be another term for that, but she likes to twist up in the air. She studies patterns of power, both covert and overt. And in this conversation, that is what we explore a lot of her research, which kind of goes all over the map. If your appetite is sufficiently whetted for Courtney Turner's work, definitely check out the links to it in the description below. And as always, if you enjoy this channel, consider liking, subscribing, and donating via the tip jars below. Without further ado, here is Courtney Turner. Good. Busy day. Really? I think there's four today. Oh, yeah. four shows, huh? Yeah. Wow, you're really hitting the circuit. <laughs> yeah, I was just, uh, well, I two are mine, and I was on a radio show this morning. So we, we did a recap of our trip to the Senate. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, apparently, like, and then actually when we were, like, about to leave, the, one of the senators called me and he I had called him because apparently he was making claims that he referred to me as like the woman in the black fur and that I was bad and I'm not allowed back. Ooh. Um, but when I called him, he claimed that that wasn't true. And I've heard it from several people, though, so I'm pretty sure it was true, unfortunately. What, what is it about your black fur? What What is that? Is he like an animal <laughs> I, rights? I think he just didn't know my name. Oh, okay. So he... Yeah, that was just the identifier, you know, like the brown hair girl that, yeah, he referred to me as the woman in the black fur because huh. he didn't know my name. Um, but yeah, so, but when I called him out on it, he was like, oh, no, 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 it was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, I said, great, because we will be coming back next week. So <laughs> what is the content so, of the uh, complaint? If uh, it is That complaint. one was on uh, uh, education. It was, uh, we were you know, trying to inform them why we are not fans of school choice. And the same day, the Americans for Prosperity was there uh, advocating for school choice. Yeah. Um, and I had just been there like a week before talking about the natural asset companies, which we had a huge win, though. Um, the SEC did withdraw the proposal for natural asset companies. Yeah, so. you know, James Lindsay was talking to me about that, which is just insane that they were that the total insane scam. Literally commodifying the air. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, somebody's got to do yeah. it. I mean, it's just a bunch of financial potential. You don't want to leave that on the table. Five quadrillion dollars is what they thought. Quadrillion. So. Now they're yeah, just making up numbers. Yeah, literally, just, just making throw, up numbers. Throw a couple yeah. more zeros on that. <laughs> Why not? I mean, at that point, I Slice mean, the cloud yeah, over there. may as well. <laughs> yeah. So, oh. yeah, so I went and I did a presentation on that. Uh, one of the senators actually invited me. He's wonderful. But he invited me to do a presentation because none of them knew of it. None, none of them had heard about it. Um, but I at that that point, they had postponed it because of the weather. But they did uh, um, what they did bring me in anyway to speak. And at that point, I really wanted to just warn them so that we could. Uh, yeah, so that they could be on the lookout for how they're going to circumnavigate and okay. yeah, they're, they're still moving forward. And I, I've seen several of the bills already, which they are so, kind of progressing. Yeah. So if you were able to count them about how many issues would you say you have? How many issues? Yeah. How many issues? Like, are, issues? like if an issue were a pie, how many, how many pies do you have your fingers in? 
Like, oh, said school I don't choice know that in I... that that uh, SEC uh, land. Right. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't really like. You mean in terms of like political stuff, or yeah, in terms yeah. of like uh, what? I don't yeah. know. I mean, those are the two big ones right now. That I. I mean, I think there's lots. I mean, I I found out today that they have a a bill about uh, making it illegal to buy cold beer. Because that's top priority. Wait, what? <laughs> so, Wait, yeah. Oh, to cut down on refrigeration. It, that's what people are saying. I don't know. I I honestly think it's just a distraction because this, like, okay, they get 15 bills a month. And so that's obviously top priority. So now people are going to, you know, argue against that one and miss some other more important things. Huh. Not that that's, you know, not important, but... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what is uh, or not important to our yeah. know, great leaders. I don't know, but I'm not like, I mean, I don't last two weeks ago when I went to, or maybe three weeks ago now, I am lo I've lost track. But when I went to present on the NAC, that was probably my first time ever doing anything like that. I mean, I. Okay. So, and then I just happened to get invited to do this thing on school choice also shortly after. So it was just. Strange, because yeah, I had never done that. So before. you're not, you haven't been like a long time political agitator. No, like <laughs> I a... don't know that I am now, but yeah, yeah no, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Well, what got you into this politicking then? Like, what was your path into it? Being engaged in this manner with government, I guess. With the natural asset companies, well, just like, uh, or just they... yeah, how did you get involved in being involved? Uh, well, I'm a podcaster, so I mean, I I started a radio show, I guess, a few months ago, and so that was my uh, kind of first foray into doing more of a lecture style solo type stuff. Because yeah. I don't know, I've have over 400, I think over 450 interviews, so you know, it's usually long form interview style. That's very different. Uh, so that was kind of the first time, and I was I had a show all scheduled for that particular day. And I had been working on it for a while. It was kind of an investigative, like on an NGO. And I did end up releasing that. But I had found out about the NACs. And I was like, this needs to be, like, the alarm needs to be sound on this, like, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did, a, uh, I did a show on that. And we had friends who were at, uh, they're very politically involved. And they were at uh, some meeting in East Tennessee, and one of the senators asked if anybody had known about the NACs and what was happening with the SEC. And uh, they, I guess, were like only two out of three people who raised their hands. And uh, they said, oh, our friends just did a show on this. Oh. <laughs> and so the senator called me and he said, would you come do a presentation uh, for the uh, for the committee? Uh, they at they, there was a lot of shuffling around of who would be available, and so it ended up being tailored to the agricultural committee, which makes sense. But okay. yeah, so so that's yeah, so I kind of randomly got involved. Huh. But yeah, <laughs> you said you have four hundred interviews. Is there a particular topic that you've done, or do you just kind of do like me and just search for people to talk to? It's all over the place. Yeah. Um. So I started my journey was kind of. Also kind of random. I was living out in Santa Monica, California at the time. And, you know, it was during 2020, the lockdown started. And for me, the masks were a huge problem because I'm hearing impaired. 
and I wear bilateral hearing aids, but I actually learned how to speak by reading lips. I didn't get hearing aids till I was almost six years old. And so I found myself like really isolated, really depressed. Um, and I normally didn't really speak too much um, about politics or share too much of my views in general because I lived in Santa Monica, California. I was in the entertainment industry. I was in the fitness industry. I was in the circus industry. And uh, none of them were really wanting to hear my views, if you will. Huh. Um, I wasn't like silent about them because I had worked. I used to write and do interviews for Politichicks. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had, I, so people knew where I stood, but I really tried not to, you know, look for fights. So yeah. I was, you know, stayed out of it, mostly on social media and whatnot. Um, but then at that time, I found myself just really having a hard time not speaking out and not saying anything. And I honestly didn't even start off intending to be political per se. Uh, we When the lockdowns happened, I like found myself fired from both gyms I was working at and I can't prove it, but I'm 99.9% .9 sure that it was over politics. Just the sequence of events kind of points in that direction. Sure. I, I, I'm an aerial acrobatic performer and I was speaking uh, about my birth story and I talked about movement as a metaphor for life and using my uh, personal story as a testimony to how um, physical training can teach you to overcome adversity in other areas of life. And so I was doing that, but all of those events got canceled, obviously. And so yeah. I found myself with a lot of time and I had thought I was gonna write, but cause I was really, I had some projects I wanted to work on. And uh, at the end of 10 hours, I found a beautiful white screen staring back at me and I decided this might not be the time to write. And so yeah. I ordered 11 books that day and I thought that might inspire me. And so I was really just like, most of them were philosophy and psychology books. That's most of my academic background. And I found myself wanting to talk about the things that I had read. And this is when I started sharing stuff on social media. And it really wasn't initially political, but I guess my worldview came through and somehow people found it very contentious and hmm. um, what, you know, started what, arguing What would be the me. essence of your contentiousness? I, mean, I don't know. I still haven't really quite figured that out. Um, but people suggested that I start... A podcast and at the time i really knew nothing about podcasting like at all um you know somebody you just hire a couple story. of roadies and get a microphone and you're all good well i didn't even do that i really just talked into my computer yeah. at the time <laughs> but uh i yeah i knew nothing and i you know i tell people that somebody had heard my birth story and they were like you need to be on rogan and i said what's a rogan why do i need to be on it like that's how little i knew about podcasts and so yeah. I obviously did some research. I found the idea really terrifying, but then I realized that it would be an opportunity to have naked face conversations. And because uh -huh. I w didn't realize how much all the coping mechanisms I spent my life developing were stripped from me by the mass. And uh, th that's my very long-winded way of saying why I started the podcast. So I really started it just as I committed to six months. Uh, this was, you know, right in the beginning of 2021. And yeah. I committed to six months of just like, you know, recording conversations and i told my guests that i might not even like air them yeah. so i was just gonna have a conversation but i really wanted to see people's faces and talk about meaningful things and so yeah. i did that and uh then at some point i found i really loved them the guests seemed to really enjoy them and i said okay i'm gonna start releasing some of these so i did oh. 
So yeah, I didn't have a specific topic. I mean, I was really just trying to figure out what was going on in the world and why things were so upside down. Yeah. And, Did you figure uh, that out? Because like, I'm I'm looking for people's. You're in, looking for input. it too. Yeah, I'm looking for people's input on that. <laughs> um, well, there there does seem to be a spiritual battle. I think <laughs> that oh. that seems to be the crux of it. Okay. Yeah. How do you, um, how would you explain that spiritual battle? Uh, what's the framework that that uh, is helpful for you? I mean, I don't know. I think it's a. Uh, I mean, I think the most simple way to put it, it does look like there's kind of a battle between good and evil. Uh, I think, you know, the details of that probably depend based on someone's worldview. Uh, and, you know, yeah. yeah. But I think, but that seems to be, there's kind of this battle between the people who want to, who honor free will. And this was the cornerstone, okay. really, of my whole podcast is that I want to, you know, be a part of preserving the free will of humanity. I think it's very much at stake. And uh, it seems like there are people who want to enslave humanity and eradicate free will. And then there are people who believe that we are endowed with free will and want to preserve that. What's that and free will based on? How does it how does it how does it scale? Can we have eight million free agents walking around? I think we can. Yeah. <laughs> I know there are people who question that. And, uh, you know, some of them I think are in, you know, uh, earnest, you know, I think some people genuinely question it. Uh, I, I think some others uh, have a more sinister, you know, view. It's more about control yeah. and uh, a power structure. Yeah. But, but uh, I personally think there's room for all of us, if there are even really a billion. I mean, I, I'm not so sure how, like, how do we really know that? Eight billion? Well, <laughs> I, we know it's more than two billion. I would assume we're not. We know that, but I mean, inaccurate. the numbers jumped pretty quickly, and it's like, what are they based on? Are they based on the census? Which does everybody fill out a census? What about third world countries? Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just saying. I, I mean, I think that they just have lasers in the sky that that count people. They might like, just like, you know, <laughs> thermal tracking or something like that. Yeah, that that could be. Yeah, who knows. <laughs> You know, um, there's this guy named Sam Harris. He is a uh, he's a podcaster too. He's he's a mm -hmm. monk. He's like a yes co agent or compatriot of us, co compatriot, um, mm -hmm. or even colleague perhaps. Um, yeah. But he doesn't believe in free will, and I've I always had a hard time even with the arguments like free will. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter if we have it or not. Like it's to what degree for me It's like, okay, to what degree am I free to choose? Like to what mm -hmm. degree are choices being made for me? And even if I am given the ability to make up my mind, like what is making up my mind for me? Like, is it my passions? Mm -hmm. Is it my, you know, virtues? Mm -hmm. Like what is it that is directing my will and to what degree can I broaden my, uh, ability to be free? And, mm -hmm. um, and there's this other podcaster named Paul Vanderclay. He's a uh, Calvinist minister that. out in Sacramento. Okay. And well, he, he yeah. does mostly YouTube stuff. Um, but he did this compilation of Sam Harris videos. Uh, Sam is arguing against free will, but he's also, yeah, he's not just arguing against free will. Like it seems like his, his point of view is that people are wrong and they need to be corrected. Like, like, mm. you know, people are wrong about how they responded to the pandemic or they're wrong about the vaccine and they need to be corrected. These people are wrong. And it seems like Sam, Sam Harris's it's, it's a fascinating episode. I'll have to uh, send you the link and link it in the description from Paul Vanderclay because 
Sam Harris like eventually kind of just makes the same argument that a Nazi would make. It's like if we could just re-educate people, if we if we can just teach them the right way to act, then the world will be safe. Mm -hmm. The world will be, you know, free. So I, I just wonder, um, that's a long circuitous way of kind of teasing out, I guess, where your position came from with regard to free will. Like why why would that be important to you? Like what is the spiritual mm -hmm. value of that or or the ethical value? Of that. Sure. Um, well, I think a lot. I mean, I I think that we, you know, where, where do we begin with that? Because there is a lot there. And there's so much in what you just said as well. I mean, I, I think Sam Harris's position is slightly different than, I'm not familiar with the other one you mentioned, but Calvinism is based on determinism. Yeah. So I'm guessing it's derived from that. But with Sam Harris, I think he's, his mindset is a little bit more like a this idea that man can be perfected and uh, we just, you know, the, those that know and yeah, those who know best. Yeah, the wrecked. institutions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, and this is, you know, interestingly enough, the Illuminati, the, the name of the Illuminati was actually the perfectibilists. Oh. They, that was totally their worldview was that man needed to be perfected. Um, and they were just by, the people to eliminate hell. By what process? Um, but, but by the, I mean, really, essentially the Gnostic elect, but okay. they, they didn't say that. They said those who were illuminated, um, which would be the Gnostic elect. Do you have um, any clue, like, how they knew that they were illuminated? Like, like, because they were rationalists? Like, did... like yeah, like, what, because they had power or? Yeah, I mean, they felt that they had been, they were the ones who had been educated and initiated okay. You know, that they would be the ones who would know okay. and then therefore they could guide others. And I mean, I think we see I, I'm not accusing Sam Harris particularly of this, but I think a lot of people have that shared world view, you know, where they they know better than other people and they can guide them. And again, I think some of them, it's, they really genuinely believe that yeah. they think that. You know, this is like the notion of a philosopher king, right? It's a very similar type of view. Um, for me, I, I I understand what you're saying about there being a spectrum of like how free are we? You know, we're we we don't know what we don't know, and uh, to some extent, we're all inside of a box. And uh, you know, I guess to use a, another Plato reference, like if we're in a cave Dust looking at shadows, and we yeah, yeah we we don't know if we're you know, in the cave, if all we see are the shadows. Yeah. So I, I get that. And we all have, uh, you know, the the things that are in front of us and our makeup and our experiences. So there's lots of things that influence our, um, our scope and our view of choices, you know, because we may have more choices than we perceive. Yeah. But, and sometimes we don't have, we, we perceive what we have as choices not to be great choices. Um, you know, they may be limited, but I still think that we really, we do have choice and the, the ability for, you know, I think the, the reason this, this conversation gets uh, kind of complicated, I think, for people is because a lot of it uh, lies in what is consciousness. And, yeah. you know, right. I think that's really where uh, that's kind of the root question. And I, I don't necessarily, I think consciousness is actually a lot more uh, complicated than we might want to perceive it or then we can even fathom actually yeah. i don't necessarily think it's like in the brain i don't think it's a just a mind body question um i do see it as kind of an interplay if they're like almost like an antenna and this is why there is such a intricate uh interconnectedness between individuals and 
you know, a greater collective, you know, I I think, and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that oftentimes people want to, you know, debate that it's one or the other, which I think is a false dialectic. I don't think that it is one or the other. I think that both have tremendous value. However, what we have most control over is the individual. We have control over our own agency if we do have free will. Right. And I think if we do have free will, then we have a lot more potential. Um, you know, and if you believe that there's a God, then, you know, the creator endows human beings with free will. And that's kind of a, a cornerstone of being human, hmm. I think. Well, at least a Western so, human. Well, I think that Eastern uh, philosophy believes in free will, too. A lot of them do. Um, you know, there's I mean, if you look at even like Taoism, there's it's more of a fluid type of. Uh, they're very much uh, connected to this notion of an intertwined kind of consciousness, mm-hmm. but they still believe in an individual, an individual having agency. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I so I don't know. I think that obviously not all, but I, I would say even in Eastern philosophy, there's there's a lot of a lot of agreement with there being some sort of concept of free will. Yeah. Do, I'm just wondering to what degree have has your philosophy been informed by your practice of aerial acrobatic performing <laughs> well certainly free will has a uh, plays a role i mean yeah. <laughs> if it's in all what respect, uh, like freaking... like when you're uh is there like an improvisation improvisational uh element to your work um not so... typically i usually do perform routines okay um but you know, I make choices in those that work well for me. Yeah. Typically when I'm performing aerial, I'm also speaking and organizing an event. That's like a lot to do at once. <laughs> oh, really? Like you just, uh, um, you have one of your roadies string up a a line, uh, like a, a rope across a plaza. And then you just start and you have your little uh, Western guy uh, microphone and you just start talking to the crowd as you're walking. <laughs> No, no. Usually I speak separately from the performing, but um, I, we do an event. It's called the cause fest cause stands for creative artists uniting for the sovereignty of everyone. Um, so the premise behind it is to create a platform for independent creative artists. Um, I, through my research it's become very evident to me that they're, they oftentimes use arts. Uh, they co-opt them for the purposes of culture creation, socially engineering the masses. Um, you know, some organizations like Tavistock are very instrumental in this. I've done a lot of deep dives on Tavistock. Um, and I was in the entertainment industry. You know, I was an actress. I was a producer, both theater and film. And then Ariel, to some degree, is a performance uh, art as well. And so it was very, it's very important to me that there be a voice for independent creative artists, because I think regardless of whether you agree with them, the analogy I always use is like, it's like coloring outside the lines. They're the people who typically are more inclined to do so and do so in a way that is very compelling, interesting, potentially Mm. even beautiful and draw you into that. So I think if there are people who are going to be divergent and likely to step outside of these sorcerer circles, these uh, Mm. crafted narratives that are spoon fed, you know, it would be creative artists. But the industry is such that you, I used to make the joke that you had to bargain with the devil to have success. And now I'm not so sure it's a joke. It might be kind of literal. Um, So it's, it can be pretty dark. And, you know, if you're not willing to go along with their narratives, whether it be, you know, literally a betting or just turning a blind eye, uh, I think it's really hard to achieve success. So I think it's important to have 
the independent voices. So we did one June 3rd and 4th. Uh, it was in Tennessee, middle Tennessee. Um, and we had 53 acts. So it was 26 and a half hours of content. We have it up on the uh, Rebels for Cause channel. And uh, I did two aerial performances. I did one each day. And uh, yeah, we had comedians, musicians, bunch of speakers, yeah, some filmmakers. You, you you mentioned you name dropped Tavistock. There's a clinic in Britain that uh, mm -hmm. part of the clinic was devoted to child gender transition. Is is that what you're talking yep, about? That's where people first started to. That's when people started to become more aware of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. Uh, but it started back in the early 1900s as the British Propaganda Bureau. It was literally called the British Propaganda Wait, Bureau. I'm sorry, but it's it, it's a mental institution. Is it not? Uh, I mean, it's a mental health institution, but you're saying that, that, that would be it, the same place, I, I like argue... the asylum and the propagandists mm -hmm. are intertwined? Oh, it's, it's quite a rabbit hole, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it literally started as the British Propaganda Bureau. It was out of the Wellington House, and it was in the early 1900s, um, I would say around 1912, and uh, they it was designed to create propaganda to garner acquiescence from both uh, the British people and the American people to engage in World War One on the side of the Brits. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And uh, it was through this that they uh, created the Creole Commission. Uh, this was uh, George Creole helmed it. He was appointed to helm the Creole Commission. And he appointed uh, Edward Bernays, of course, the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. Interestingly enough, his nephew is the founder of today's modern propaganda machine, uh, Mark Randolph Bernays. Uh, the propaganda machine that I'm referring to would be Netflix. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, he also appointed Walter Lippmann, who was an American journalist, and they oversaw uh, the Creole Commission in the United States. They uh, really guided Woodrow Wilson, he, which it was a pretty tall order because he ran on the campaign that he would not engage us in the First World War. Uh, this is where Tavistock, uh, around 1916, they weaponized the term isolationist. We saw that resurface with oh. Ron Paul. Uh, not, yeah, years ago when he was running, remember a lot of, he was gaining, garnering a lot of uh, support from the political right. And uh, the way that they tried to demonize him was he's a crazy isolationist. We can't have his foreign policy. So those who know the history, this was familiar. This was certainly not the first time that they've hmm. weaponized that term. And very similar to the CIA, you know, uh, document 1035-960, and they weaponized the term conspiracy theorist. And uh, we've seen a lot of that resurfacing yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. There's this uh, notion of 5G warfare being um, information warfare. Um, mm -hmm. And what you were just describing about um, getting involved in World War One, you see at the same time that there's this massive uh, upscaling of technology in war, there's also a rapid upscaling of propaganda at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, these you yep. know, these vehicles for information and for uh, human destruction, uh, you know, being uh, weapons, are both just rapidly gaining uh, credence. And so mm -hmm. entering yeah. into this stuff that you're doing now, this podcasting stuff, you're mm -hmm. you're also do you, do you think of yourself as participating in information warfare of a of a sort of a stripe? I guess so. Yeah, I I do. Um, I don't necessarily see myself as like, I don't know, that's weird. Like, am I a soldier in the war? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I guess so. I mean, I felt like it was really important to sound the alarms on the NACs. And, you know, I did. I I can't really explain. I just felt like that was important. And I felt called to do that. I, I Certain topics just will speak to me and hmm. I will, you know, do, do deep dives on them and, yeah, try to inform. But, I mean, I think... I'm just, I'm a very curious person. I want to understand how things work. And, uh, you know, so as I seek truth, I share it, you know, I don't claim to like have any ownership on it or be right all the time or anything like that. But I think that in information warfare, a lot of times what people are struggling with is is access to the information or comprehension of information. So, yeah. So I would say, yeah, that's, that is what I strive to do is to bring access and clarity of information yeah. so, but what i can th- only cover so much so <laughs> yeah no absolutely and um what are your thoughts on the path of information right now of uh the possibility of you know a free and open internet or, or at least channels of communication do you think that that um is i mean of course it's under threat but what do you what do you think about the threats to free speech broadly speaking but like the free exchange of information mm-hmm. especially in times of emergency if they uh if one were to happen uh to us right um well free speech is definitely i mean that was kind of like you know one of the when i started the podcast that was definitely a big topic on my mind because i felt like speech was really being censored very heavily. Um, and I, I experienced that personally. I think they, uh, the SPLC decided I was a hate podcast on number oh, 11. Really? <laughs> um, Congratulations. You t- you t- yeah. <laughs> and then YouTube took me down like pretty shortly after that. So, yeah. So, I mean, I really did experience quite a bit of censorship. And I, you know, it was interesting to me because when I started, I remember I I don't know. I'm not a super confrontational person. So like I said, in 2020, it was pretty hard because I found myself forced to confront quite often. Um, You know, I got kicked out of doctor's offices. I eventually left L.A. I think the final straw was a woman chasing me down the street with a knife telling me, screaming at me and telling me I was a murderer because my naked face was going to somehow be a threat to her. Wait, did she have a mask on at least? She had a mask, yeah. So she... Yeah, she was the knife. I was very safe from her. Uh, No, the the knife was. Yeah, somehow that that was not a threat in her mind. It was my bare face, but the knife chasing towards me that that seemed to be perfect, perfectly fine by her. Um, Yeah, so I yeah, that was one of the final straws. What what did that do to your faith in Californians? Uh, If not humanity. I well, <laughs> at that point, whatever faith I had left was uh, it was really hanging by a thread. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty pretty awful. Mm. So, but with the free speech, I I do think it's very much in jeopardy. But I think that I think the 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 powers that be, if you will, I call them parasite class. I think that they very much thought that the internet was going to be a tool for them. And I think it's very similar to like the early days of Tavistock where, you know, or even earlier when, you know, once you had the printing press and then the ability to disseminate the information uh, that ended up kind of working against them, you know, so now the channels are much less controlled. And I think that's kind of what's happening with the internet. That's not to say that we're not in some sort of threat of, you know, like a cyber polygon type blackout or uh, they could do something like that. Cyber polygon? Uh, 
Cyber Polygon. Yeah. What is that? Cyber Polygon. Oh, like Klaus Schwab talks about this a lot, where there's like the potential for a media, like not just media, but like a, you know, internet blackout where they could just shut down and go dark. And uh, yeah. So are they proud of that? Uh, are they, they working on that or is it possible? Well, they, it, it, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I think it's entirely possible. I, I don't know. I, I think they, they present it as like a, I, I think they present it as this is a, a problem and we need to address it. But I, I also wonder if it's a little bit of a, you know, predictive programming, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, they tend to war game things and they throw things out. Like a lot of people are familiar with uh, Operation Lockstep. You know, that's, uh, have you heard of Operation Lockstep? Could you give me a was, precise of that? Lockstep? Yeah, sure. So this was a, uh, it was part of a Rockefeller joint with uh, John Hopkins document. It was page 16 to 26 of this document. And it was called, uh, what was it? Scenarios from Future Technologies. I think that's what it was called. Uh, something like that. That was the title. And what they did was they outlined all of these different potential future scenarios that we must be protected against. Yeah. And a lot of people know Operation Lockstep because during COVID, they said it looks so much like Operation Lockstep. But if you actually look at that document, which was over 100 pages, they actually had four scenarios that could play out, like Hack Attack was one of them, or um, I don't remember the names of all of them. But it really looks to me, while yes, COVID does look like it's a war game scenario yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And Lockstep does look like very similar to COVID. However, there are elements of all four of them. And I think that typically that's what they do. Like they, they test things, they beta test. Uh, and then they, you know, kind of collect the data. This is how Tavistock works, right? The, Tavistock is really the founders of so, so, the field of social science. Um, and that's what they were doing. They were constantly collecting information yeah. information in order to be able to weaponize it, essentially. Uh, and they do it under the guise of defense. But I, I usually make the joke that, like, once they have a D in front of it, then they have a black ops carte blanche budget to do whatever they want in uh, secret. Yeah. Uh, you see this with ARPA, then became DARPA, right? Now, not to say there were no problems with ARPA, yeah. but ARPA was at least a lot more transparent. Now, with DARPA, we have no clue what half of the things uh, they're doing are. So, because it's under the guise of defense. Yeah. But unfortunately, sometimes those things that they're doing get weaponized against us. So, yeah, that was a lockstep. It was very similar, a lot of uh, similar kind of tactics. But I think they really use pieces of all four that they had laid out. And then, you know, they, they save it for a later two. We'll see how people responded and what might be most effective next time. Yeah. Do you think, think that that's just one document, but they're thousands literally do you think that uh, americans broadly speaking are um capable of warding off social control of that sort capable of evading it i so the way i look at america i have like my beekeeper analogy and i see you know I, it's not that i think america is uh like you know, there's lots of great things about lots of places in the world and certainly the people all over the world. I think humans are incredible. But there is, I think, something very unique about the the founding documents of the United States and it, this idea of being endowed with inalienable rights from our creator, creator, I think, is a very unique concept. And this is where a lot of our founding documents are predicated on. 
And I think from that, there is a notion that human beings do have free will and that through this, we are a bulwark against a lot of metrics of control and tyranny, tyrannical forces. I think that's part of why they're so adamant on taking down the United States. And huh. I, I don't know that we're doing all that well at doing it, but I do think, and I, and this is not the government of the United States. I mean, I'm just as upset with them. And especially now that I've gone, uh, <laughs> you know, to speak with some of them, I'm even less, I think I was a little more naive before yeah. uh, I had much more optimism, but I, I think that the people definitely, you know, it's incumbent upon us to preserve the free will of humanity. And that could be a bulwark against tyranny, because if we have free will, then and we take ownership of it, then we can control our actions and the course of our life. You know, that's not to say that we have, a, you know, that we're unlimited. You know, yeah. I think there's a difference. Um, but I do think that that's a huge defense against tyranny and tyrannical forces and control metrics. But, you know, ultimately, like, I, I get asked this all the time, like, you know, can can we stop the UN? Can we stop the WHO? Can we, you know, all of these different big entities that are, you know, very focused on creating a centralized, globalized governance, um, you know, that's, that's their mission. And uh, I don't know that we can stop them, honestly, but I think that what we can do is create little sanctuaries as localized as possible. Yeah. And that can have a ripple effect. So, yeah. 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 That's what, um, that's one solution that I keep um, discovering when, when talking about the uh, path of globalization is like, well, what's the real counter of that? It's round up even, even, uh, you know, it's even philosophically or ideologically, how do you, how do you fight, you know, that kind of collectivism and it's like okay we'll take ownership from your of yourself to clean your room kind of uh -huh, vector sure. of that yeah 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 start with that start with your personal relationships your family then your communities and hopefully we'll grow from there yeah and i think it does i think that that's you know i mean you just think about in person interpersonal relationships you can't control somebody else's actions you can't necessarily uh you know have control over an outcome but what you can do is change your behavior and then hope that that has a a shift in the dynamic mm. and that's often what you're looking yeah. for anyway is a shift in the dynamic so there is these those founding documents of the united states of america that you brought up um one critique of them from uh kind of a faction of the right mm -hmm. the dissident right is that these yes. things are just words on paper and they're actually not being enforced so they don't really they're fictions they're complete fictions that nobody's enforcing mm -hmm. them they're kind of evoked um you know some sort of magical bulwark against tyranny but the entire apparatus of the government doesn't follow mm -hmm. the law and they actually have laws that are counter to those laws like with the if you go down the rabbit hole the civil rights law and how that's shaken out to um the uh judiciary kind of basically encroaching more and more onto people's lives and in, in the name of fairness mm. or progress or whatever like like that so what is your um when you look at how things can shake out like with these different kinds of agitation like uh my friend james Lindsay continually calls christian nationalism a psyop um you know a, a few weeks ago there was uh you know texas had a kind of standoff with the government and then a bunch of states had to stand off too um and so yep. 
you know, when you think about how people are going to be pushed to the limit and they're going to push back at some point, maybe they won't. But is it necessary to have a pushback? And when do you know that that's the proper time to push back against the encroachment of, of a tyrannical uh, bureaucratic organization called the United States government? <laughs> Well, that, that's a loaded question. I mean, I, I yeah. would say that there there's a big difference between pushback and reaction, right? Okay. So, uh, you know, I think that there you, you brought up like the what was going on with the Texas border and Christian nationalism. And I do think that there is an intentional uh I do think they're psyops and designed to create extreme reactionaries. And that, of course, just creates a dialectic which advances the same agenda coming at it from both sides, right? Okay. So I, I don't I'm not necessarily in favor of that. I don't necessarily encourage people to be uh, you know, play reactionaries, especially when uh, I think oftentimes the people who think that they're going to react and make a difference and have an impact. Uh, usually don't do it nearly as well because they're not nearly as organized as those who are pushing the agenda. Yeah. Um, but you had addressed like whether or not these documents matter. Um, and I would say the fact that they're being ignored and walked all over, you know, that that's the problem. It's not the documents themselves. I mean, the documents, I think if we had some sort of restoration, um, then I think we would mm. have more sanctions against these uh, encroachments of tyrannical measures and control metrics. Um, but I think this is, again, why it's so important to take action locally, because I, I do think our federal apparatus is completely corrupt. I, I see that every which way I turn. And not to say that I don't think that there's corruption at the local level. I absolutely think there's corruption at the local level as well. Yeah. And I, strangely enough, you know, it's not just coming from the federal apparatus. I actually think there is really, um, it's a very intricate web, this, uh, you know, centralized uh, body that's vying for a worldwide centralized governance. I I don't think it's like a one entity, and but I think that that is really impacting a lot of very local things, actually, which is very unfortunate. But if people were to take action locally and under the principles of those documents, I think that we would have much more yeah. power. Is a restoration, do you think, possible uh, toward Americanism without uh, an accompanying return to the what Americanism was founded on being Judeo-Christian values, religion specifically? So say that again. Do, do you think uh, that a restoration of Americanism, like mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. you know, constitutional republic, right. um, people right. uh, resurrecting those documents as the gold standard of our government rather than just like a signal, is it possible, you think, in mass for Americans to return to that without also returning to uh, religion in mass? I mean, I don't, I think. A return to religion could have a lot of great outcomes. Uh, I don't think a forced return to religion will do any good. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that that is, you know, most people don't realize in the First Amendment, it, it's not freedom from religion. It's freedom of religion, which means huh. freedom to have religion, freedom to uh, believe and practice as you wish, uh, freedom not to practice as you wish. Yeah. And I think that's a huge um, I think that's a huge part of 
what this country is founded upon. I mean, literally one of the primary reasons it was founded was because they were fleeing religious persecution. Um, And I I think it's also part of what makes it work. It's also what makes it complicated. Now you've got a bunch of people with different views and different uh, beliefs. And, uh, you know, so of course that you're going to have conflicts then as well. But I, I, I mean, I just don't, what I'm seeing is now, and it just looks like it's coming from both sides. So you've got, you know, kind of the left who has always advocated for, you know, an abolishing of religion altogether. And now you've got a lot on the right who are vying for the complete opposite, which would be a theocracy. And uh, that seems completely antithetical to huh. America. <laughs> yeah. America was about freedom of religion. You know, that's not to say that I, I think people who are religious, people who do uh, come, you know, are strong in their faith should be strong in their faith. They should absolutely practice, you know, live their life as an example. But I mean, you know, if we just take Christianity, for example, I think it's really bizarre to have Christians somehow deciding that they need to impose their belief system on other people. Isn't that like the complete opposite of Christianity? You would lead by example, certainly teach, you know, but to force somebody else's will seems antithetical to Christianity. So I don't know how... Like even advocating for something like uh, a theocracy or even just uh, advocating that people have to believe in religion makes any sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. even if you are a Christian, like that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So. so what what are some of the topics that just, I guess we're already doing that. I just wanted to like kind of back, yeah. zoom out to zoom back in again, um, just yeah. to reset the, the conversational lens. <laughs> What what are some of the like the the patterns of your content like what you what you end up mapping out like it seems like you're doing some really high level and deep dives into power power structures propaganda information mm-hmm. and, yeah. and what do you, what are you kind of basically seeing? Um, I think that's accurate. I look a lot at power uh, power structures, definitely propaganda. Um, those are definitely a lot of the things that I look into. And it does seem like there's a, you know, pillars in which they're operating through, uh, you know, obviously like the, the medical field, I think they're using a lot of that in order to uh, control. And when you look at agenda 2050, there's all sorts of uh, bio technical digital, you know, bio digital convergence type things that are, uh, being used under the guise of being able to track and for convenience, but they they really do look like, okay. you know, ways of literally controlling through kind of a nanobot Internet of Things type of system, which is pretty scary. Uh, um, but, yeah, I don't I don't know. So the question was, uh, the, what do I what what am I seeing? Yeah, I guess. Um, so you are I seeing know. a I mean, cabal. I'm, like a I, I'm definitely seeing. But, it, you know, it's not a I think people when. I keep making the joke that the only game people ever learned how to play was pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, So people want to think it's a lot more, uh, you know, simplistic than it actually is. It's like people take a very reductionistic view of the world and they're like, it's that and we'll just blame everything on that. Yeah whatever that thing they pin it on is, because it's different for different people. But they find the thing that the, the boogeyman, and I just don't think it works that way. From what I've seen is it's actually a very, very intricate web. Um, there might be a shared worldview, but it's a very, very intricate web. You know, it's a web of uh, obviously financial institutions, NGOs, um, secret societies, 
um, a steering committees, think tanks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty complicated, yeah. you know, and the, the analogy again I would use is like, uh, it's kind of like the mafia, you know, the... The, the mafioso, like the, the head of the mob, is not going to run around like killing people because then it'd be really easy to trace. You'd be like, oh, get him. Right. So he has a whole bunch of minions doing his like he's got a lot of hitmen doing all of his yeah. dirty work for him. And I think that's really what happens. So you now have all of these webs and it's very intermingled and tangled. And you have you do have some more underground secret groups. So they're able to carry out things without being as uh, overt or well-known, um, they can carry out missions kind of underground, if you will. Yeah. I think sometimes literally, but... Doesn't know. that work against them, though, if if everybody's kind of uh, following their own... If I don't see how complexity helps the system, though it does, uh, you know, it could obfuscate uh, a lot of different intentions, who's pulling the screens and stuff like that, but... Mm -hmm. If it's too complex, and it's got to be a lot of people, if you want to control the world, you need a lot of people doing that. And there could be convergence of interests, but don't those self-interests kind of pull it apart? Like, it just, I just keep on thinking about the Tower of Babel. Like, it's only going to get so mm -hmm. high before it starts to fracture, right? That would be great. Hopefully that's the case. Um, but you, I think... But or, or is there a system by which it does make sense and it is cohesive and it's all working together, like all these different groups working together? Is there kind of a system or a system of thought that allows them to? I, I don't to? know that there's, well, there's systems and there's, a, okay. you know, ways of implementing. So I, I think a lot of it comes down to levers of power and, you know, modalities of essentially like mind control you know they are and a lot a lot of these like so there's blackmail obviously we know there's a uh, secrets um that's a huge way of building uh, somebody feels invested they also feel a sense of prestige um there's also a lot of really dark kind of ritualistic type of things that happen really um like that left I, eye this, club those, or something like that <laughs> the left eye club. Yeah, well, that's uh, right, the eye of Horus. This goes all the way back to the mystery schools. And the, I mean, we have evidence of mystery schools doing essentially what later became a much more, uh, you know, systematized, codified method of trauma-based mind control. Um, and a lot of the trauma-based mind control studies, uh, that was a lot of what uh, Tavistock was working on uh, back when they were the Tavistock Medical Clinic. So there was, uh, yeah, in 1920, the 11th Duke of Bedford, uh, who was also the uh, Marquis of, and it was centered in the area of Tavistock. Um, but he is related to, um, who was it? Oh, I forgot the first name, but Russell, who was... Uh, yeah, Bertrand. The, Right, who is the, not Bertrand Russell, he's oh, a philosopher. Okay. Um, I think William Ian Russell. And he and uh, uh, Alfonso Tafts, uh, Tafts, the the president's uh, relative, was uh, the two of them started Skull and Bones together. Um, and this, so the creator of Skull and Bones is related to this Duke of Bedford who donated a building that became Tavistock, specifically designed for doing what they called shell shock therapy research. So essentially it's later become like post-traumatic stress disorder uh, research. And they, it was under the guise that they were studying soldiers and, 
you know, trying to help them with their shell shock therapy. But a lot of that laid the groundwork for what became MKUltra. I don't think MKUltra could have happened without that research. So, and a lot of that research was based on trauma-based mind control, which was, uh, I mean, goes all the way back to the mystery schools. They were doing all of these types of, and it, it is occult rituals. I've interviewed, so if, if you look at subcategories, I have lots of different categories yeah, of things that yeah. I've investigated, um, but I've interviewed uh, over a dozen satanic ritual abuse survivors. Um, some of them were uh, MK Ultra survivors as well. Some of them were just satanic ritual abuse. Some were just MK Ultra. Um, so it's a very real thing. And, you know, people say, oh, well, some of them just make things up. And there are people, you know, and there are people who are actually crazy. Um, but, you know, if if they're all making it up, the stories wouldn't all be so similar. It wouldn't. And you you can kind of tell when there's threads, you know, that and it's like, OK, there's something very real here. And it, it's really dark. It's really dark. It's really tragic. But the, when you look at and when you look at Project Monarch, this was a CIA project as a subset of uh, MK Ultra. Um, they were doing uh, work that was based on trauma-based mind control, and it was all through intergenerational trauma, uh, in utero trauma when possible, early childhood trauma, and. Uh, you know, they had some other requirements uh, because the intention was to create dissociative, dissociative personality disorders, uh, you know, which previously was called multiple personality disorders. What, what, what and is the a, use of such uh, broken individuals? So now you have uh, all these different what they called alters. And this is really great for creating an asset. Right. A great movie. And I can't believe they did this, but uh, that really showcases this very recent It's called Argyle. But they really laid it out uh, exactly how oh, okay. uh, one could be used. Yeah. As an asset through uh, the dissociated personality disorders. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've interviewed several and it. It's fascinating, but Project Monarch, if you just look at the class, declassified documents, I mean, they talk about what they were looking for. Um and uh, a lot of it was intergenerational trauma, these various stages of trauma, uh, you know, broken types of families and uh, IQs of over 120 apparently are uh, more likely to dissociate than IQ under 120. So they were self they were selecting for those. So, yeah. In order to do uh, what? Just have agents? Like board well, people? for Project Monarch. So they were doing all these experiments on, uh, and a lot of it was around dissociative personality disorder, like how they could create dissociative personality. I mean, they were testing other things yeah. as well. But you see that that makes a really great asset because now somebody can split and they don't have a recollection of what happened in that personality, but they can be triggered instantly. You can program them. And that's very useful if you want somebody to be an agent for oh. you. Well, what what <laughs> about um, this generation? I mean, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but insofar mm -hmm. as COVID uh, and the response to that novel coronavirus uh, impacted an entire generation, took them out of school or put them into like weird kind of forced uh zoom yeah zoom things a lot of dissociation with the mask and the shields and yeah. a lot of like and if you're embedding that into an entire generation um, mm -hmm. what, what's the game plan if there is a game plan is it to create 
and weed out uh, or to create a compliant, a compliant populace or a, a damaged populace even? Well, I would argue both. Um, and I mean, that was our entire education system. I mean, our entire education system was exported from the Prussian model. It was a three-tier Prussian model of education uh, that was born after the Battle of Jena in uh was that uh, 1807, they lost the Battle of Jena and it was during the Napoleonic Wars and they decided that they lost the battle because the soldiers rebelled and they realized the soldiers rebelled because they were critical thinkers. And so they decided they had to eradicate critical thinking. And uh, they the translation of what they said was they were literally going to breed mindless, obedient soldiers. And uh, bless you. So when they... Um, yeah, so when they uh, exported, and this was largely exported to the United States. I know a lot of people are very familiar with like uh, John Dewey, and he was a large part of it. But I would go back earlier to Wilhelm Wundt um, and the Leipzig Connection. And I forgot the two uh, who coined that term, the Leipzig Connection, but it very much is a Leipzig Connection. This is Leipzig University. So Wilhelm Wundt was known as the uh, grandfather of the field of psychology. And of course, he gave the very first PhD ever, which I call the pinnacle of indoctrination, um, to uh, William James, who's known as the American father of psychology. And, uh, the, you know, the, there were lots of ties to that. Don Dewey actually was not part of the Leipzig Connection, but some of the people he, but he was mentored by Stanley G. Hall, who was a student at the Leipzig University. Uh, some of the other people would be like Pavlov and Skinner. Uh, so, you know, definitely names that have been very instrumental in shaping our education and the field of psychology. And they're both very, very much intertwined, uh, intentionally so. And uh, they so and then, of course, they did uh, bring it here uh, to the United States. And the whole purpose was to breed compliance. This is why it's done through a very kind of militaristic style. And that, of course, comes from Hegel. Uh, you know, I would say that would be the, the right wing uh, side of Hegel that has the dialectic is uh, he is kind of encompasses the both. Um, but, yeah, he, they very they took that. That's why it's like you ring the bell, uh, you know, to program to switch classes. Um, they did this really interesting study. It was actually, it turned out to be for NASA. And uh, it was a study where they took, uh, they were testing, they started with two-year-olds. And it was uh, literally uh, like 98% of them qualified to be geniuses. And then they followed them every five years. And uh, by the time they were adults, it was uh, less than 2% of the population uh, qualified and this is a byproduct of our education system because a large part of what makes a genius is this, uh, you know, independent, creative thought thought processes, which has been bred out of them through this very militarized mm. uh, school system. Well, so I yeah. yes, now it's advanced obviously through COVID, but now you have not only, uh, you know, they're not only breeding compliance and brainwashing and indoctrinating the students, uh, but they've also traumatized them. So when you're traumatized, your your brain, like your brain capacity literally gets reduced and uh, your ability to uh, not just think critically and clearly, but also to be triggered, uh, obviously skyrockets. And so now you're much more susceptible to programming. Mm. So. so if that's the case, why not school choice? Can you help me square that circle? Yeah, sure. So it sounds great. <laughs> uh, who doesn't want choice, especially if you do believe in free will, as I do. Um, and I, I would like to see it preserved, if possible, if, if we in fact have it. Um, but it 
it's not school choice. What it is is government school choice. So interesting story about me. When I was in uh, sixth grade, I was 12 years old. I actually created a board for school choice. So I've kind of come 180 on this issue. Um, but it was very different back then. I grew up in a town that was a very small town next to a, a bigger town that my town did not have a, it, it wasn't like small town, like country. I grew up right outside of New York City. But we didn't have a high school, a public high school. And so the choice was to go to this neighboring town. And it was not a good school. It was just not a good education. You know, uh, it was not where I wanted to go. But I saw that a lot of the kids I went to like nursery school with, kids I was friends with who actually lived closer to me, like their schools were closer just in physical distance than the school that I would have had, you know, availability, uh, the option to go to. And so I didn't understand this at all. I said, why don't my parents get to choose where they want to send me, especially if this school is a horrible school? And so I started this board and that's what I was really focused on. If it's public schools, my parents should be able to choose, especially if the distance is the same or closer. To another school, right? Um, so that was what I was buying for back then. However, now what school choice is really designed to do is a, a create public-private partnerships. It is all about a whole sector, and it's, this is even in these bills. It's like now you've got all these vendors who are going to be attached. A lot of it is about mental health, and uh, so this makes sense that this comes out of the Hegelian Bontian, uh, you know, exportation of the education system. <laughs> um, they do a lot of this tracking and uh, measuring and uh, controlling through under the guise of mental health and wellness checks. And so e the, some of the public-private partnerships are going to be things like, you know, the uniform. So you'll have clothing vendors, you'll have, uh, uh, you know, obviously the counselors and the mental health, um, the transportation. So now you've got all, and but on top of it, whatever the government funds, it runs. So what it's doing is they have control over the public school. They have that already. They even have control already of private school students who have some sort of hybrid funding system where it's not completely privatized. Um, but now what they really want is control over the homeschoolers because those are obviously the ones who they can't track. Um, they can't breed into, you know, good compliant global citizens, which is really, I mean, you just read Charlotte is a written. Uh, she was, uh, you know, she worked under the Reagan administration and she, her father was actually skull and bones. Uh, Anthony Sutton, I might have it somewhere here, uh, did a great section. He wrote a book on the order of skull and bones and the middle like one third of the book is all about how the order controls education. And uh, he talks about this as well. But of course, John Taylor Gatto talks about it as well. But even back then, all the documentation coming out of UNESCO and a lot of these other organizations were talking about how the goal was to create global citizens. That That's what the education system was designed to do. And so uh, that's what they want. They want to get all of these homeschoolers who are not being indoctrinated and brainwashed and not being bred into global citizens. And they can do that through these voucher systems. There's lots of names for it because that's what they do. They're great at marketing. They're great with language and manipulating the terms and changing definitions, yeah. uh, just like school choice. It sounds like a choice, but it's not really because even here in Tennessee, we don't really have completely independent homeschooling. You either have category 
before where you're under these umbrellas and there's strings attached there, or you have what they call independent school choice. And those are already have to uh, meet certain requirements to take testing, like standardized testing that's across the board. They still have, they still have control over some of the wellness checks, the medical checks, um, huh. which, so it's really not independent, even though it sounds like independent homeschoolers, but that's not what it is. And so, you know, like one of the bills that we were talking about, they said, well, they're, they're leaving the independent homeschoolers out of it. Well, of course, because they're already being tracked. They're already being subsidized. They're, they're already under that umbrella of the government. Uh, so what they really want to get is the Category 4, which are not completely independent, as they are in some states. Um, but because really homeschooling should mean like you're out of the system. Uh, but they're not. And that's what they want. That's what universal school choice is all about, is getting everybody under the umbrella of uh, the government. And yeah, I'll say it again, whatever this government, whatever the government funds, they run, they have their strings attached. to. What is the content of a global citizen? If you're walking down the street, how would you spot one of those? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I I mean I I don't know I don't know how you would spot them unless uh, you know they they start making them all wear the same things I, I'm not sure but I, I think it's more about an ideology it's more about uh, you know they've done a really good job of breeding compliance uh, in schools and not just in the United States I mean this is you know I, I would say uh, all over. But, you know, that that's what they're really trying to do here. And uh, a lot of the social emotional learning stuff is about that as well. So it's, I would say it's more of an ideology. It's more of a, you know, inculcation than it is a like, you know, do they have a certain, you know, mark on their face or <laughs> yeah. something? I don't think it's that. <laughs> it is. Well, yesterday was Ash Wednesday. So those people are easy to spot or they were yesterday. Um <laughs> So if, yes, if not school choice, then what, what are you for? Homeschool? Homeschool, I think, is great. I mean, I think there's a reason so many parents have pulled their kids out of the school system. Uh, bless you. I think there, you know, some private schools can be wonderful. I think, uh, you know, some of the uh, parochial schools, if they're truly independent and they're aligned with the parents' views, I think that they can be a great option. Um, I think there's even kind of these hybrid homeschools, you know, where like if uh, the parents don't feel equipped to school, they educate their children at home. They do kind of like a communal type thing. Some of those can be great options. I mean, I, I think about myself personally, I would have really preferred to be homeschooled. <laughs> Most of what I've learned is completely autodidactic yeah. and uh yeah, I, you know, I at one point they put me in a Montessori school, but, you know, Montessori is great as long as there's the infrastructure. Um, but I think that if you're outside the standard deviation, if you're either really far behind or really far ahead, Montessori is, you know, definitely problematic. Why? Uh, for geniuses, let's say. Or for people or for those who might have challenges. Yeah. So because they need more of a, a independent kind of or individualized type of plan. Um, yeah, but I mean, definitely on either end, I think it's problematic. So if you're kind of in within the standard deviation, I think it's, it, it can work pretty well. You know, you kind of go at your own pace, but that pace isn't going to be too far off from other people. You know, you might finish like a chapter ahead, uh, yeah. you know, two sections ahead, you're fine. You know, I, I personally, I went in third grade and it was a very small school. It only went up to sixth grade. I finished the third grade uh, in third grade in October. I finished a sixth grade math textbook and they had nothing for me to do. They okay. literally just told me to sit in a corner and go read, huh. which, you know, 
I I could have done that at home yeah. with possibly more resources and, you know, like done more with that. Maybe, maybe I could have gone to take a, uh, you know, middle school math class or, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, it, it seems but, like it, there's a through line between that moment, that third grader and where you are now doing your own research. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I did a lot of that in, uh, you know, high school as well. I did a lot of, in, I did two independent theses on uh, dream analysis. Um, so I like got permission. I was the first junior to ever do it. I got permission to do field study and uh, then presented before a panel of neuropsychiatrists. And my school actually published the work. It was oh, on wow. dream analysis. Jeez, another one in high school. And uh, I did like several, I did an independent study in philosophy in high school. I did several independent researches that research projects that the school, the school published some of them. But yeah, I was always kind of like, I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be told what to learn or yeah, so I kind of, my my like quote in high school was, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no trail and leave, go where instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, not everybody's like that. Some people do need a lot more structure and guidance and, you know, that should be there. But who better to do that than I think the parents, but I understand not all parents can. So there needs, but there needs to be op options and alternatives that aren't, government run i think mm. yeah i think you know if people want to put them in the in the public schools and the government system they have that option already but there needs to be options outside of it you know we have the option to put them in the public school and for for some people that works out fine and i think that's a parent's choice to make yeah. but you know again when when there's no choice <laughs> yeah what are some so. of the bigger narratives that you end up thinking need to be challenged and popular culture or just like the popular imagination like right now hmm interesting i don't know i don't know if i go looking for i'm usually trying to look outside of the narratives because ah. i think they're often being spoon-fed and usually they're being spoon-fed for people to be pitted against each other yeah <laughs> So I'm usually trying to find like what's outside of that and not like not just find a narrative and reject the narrative. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the pop culture right now is kind of interesting because I think it's been quite a pendulum swing. You know, I'm seeing like a, a trickle down of the original red pill movement. I've been informed that what we're seeing now is not the red pill movement, but I don't know. The, the which which red that. pill are you speaking about? Right, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm being told is like, what's red, red pill? Um, but I don't know. This whole like trad wife, like, you know, trend. And uh, I, I feel like it's the the culture has gotten so wacky. That now people are craving some kind of traditionalism, yeah. but it's like, what traditionalism? And it looks very shallow. It looks kind yeah. of vapid. It's, it's almost like cosplay. And it's like, okay, like, so we'll just dress like 50s pinups and uh, that's somehow going to fix the culture. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's kind of like crazy. <laughs> it's very silly, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of things that are coming out of this, like, Pendulum, I don't like pendulum swings, you know, like that's what I'm saying. I tend to like to look outside of that. Yeah. And I think that's where, that's how the game is played. It's like, okay, we're going to go all the way over here so that we can get a reaction all the way over there. And guess what? Eventually we're going to end up exactly the same place. Huh. Do you, yeah. do, do, is there a, like a right left, uh, does that track at all for you? As authentic uh, or yeah. as 
like when people say I like no i mean it's obviously so I, a lie like the biden administration calling out white supremacy and the far right ultra magas you know it's, it's transparently like some sort of weird cringy stunt that they're doing you know but is there like a danger from the left or a danger from the right from your point of view yeah i think there's tremendous danger from both honestly um, I, I posted a tweet pretty recently, actually, and I said that oftentimes people think of, uh, you know, political labels as uh, like philosophical constructs uh, and ideology. And oftentimes I, in application, what I actually see is target audiences for marketing, <laughs> because what happens, I think people identify a specific way. So like people, they see the label and they're like, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a whatever it may be. And, you know, not to say that there aren't actual uh, philosophies and ideologies, you know, but the, a lot of those have morphed over time. There's a lot of different thinkers that have codified those ideologies and they don't all agree upon everything, yeah. you know, so it's pretty comprehensive. Um, this is why, like, you know, when you, I hear a lot of the dissident rights saying the Enlightenment is the problem, and I've asked so many of them, like, so which Enlightenment specifically? Like, is there a specific thinker you have beef with? Because, I mean, I was philosophy major and I can't keep track of all of it, you yeah, know, it's yeah, like, yeah. so, but, uh, yeah, so I don't, I, but what I do see is that people will identify a specific way and then they become a really good target audience for marketing and for moving forward, uh, psyops and culture wars. And that's been really effective. I started out my podcast and kind of like this with naive kind of view, or at least from my perspective, it seems naive now, uh, you know, no judgment to anybody who still, who thinks this way, but, um, <laughs> but I started out being like, we could just get the right people in office, you know, because the, the Republicans are really behaving like controlled opposition to the left. And we could just get the right people in office and vote our way out of this. We'll fix this whole mess. And then as I, a few months into it, I was like, so I think the Republican Party was created to be controlled opposition for the left. And that is really what I think. George Washington warned us of that. He warned us against having a two-party system because he said that it would be a loophole for foreign entanglements and for, uh, you know, manipulation of uh, people who want to seize control and usurp power. So yeah, yeah. Kind of think that's seems so, to be playing out. <laughs> so if we can't vote our way out of this... And we can't insurrect our way out of this. <laughs> are you just doing that? Are you are you going back to uh, what's his name? It's escaping me right now. Uh, to Tok Tokfell, like small communities. I think that's a huge, huge bulwark. I do, um, but I do not advocate not voting. I know there's a huge movement. Uh, I'm seeing it definitely, like in the millennial generation, some Gen X, but it seems to be a growing movement of people advocating not to vote because the system's so corrupt. We should just opt out. And I don't really advocate for that. I mean, I think that you know the solution to a problem isn't necessarily to turn a blind eye and ignore the problem. Yeah. I'm a big fan of parallel systems. And I absolutely think that locally, you know, small communities uh, are a great way to grow those parallel systems, build those parallel systems and reliance networks. But I think that you still need to fight within the system, even if it's just for optics. Optics, I think, do matter. Um, because just if you take the example of voting, if we, if there were just like everybody just stop voting or everybody on the right, let's just say stops voting, uh, then they 
you know, regardless of whether they cheat or not, they have the optics of, oh, look, well, nobody turned out. Obviously, like we won. Whereas if people fight within the system while working on parallel systems, I think that's much more effective. Um, I also think that there's, you know, if you think about like the financial system, a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, the Federal Reserve is corrupt. It's a fiat currency. Like the whole thing needs to implode. And I Not that I disagree that it's corrupt and that it's a fiat system. I agree with all of that. I'm very, you know, familiar with the story of Preacher from Jekyll Island and the, you know, the whole uh, literal conspiracy they had. And then we suddenly had our uh, lovely Christmas present with the income tax. And uh, yeah, so, you know, for Christmas. Yeah. Um, So I'm familiar with all of that and I don't disagree. However, I don't think people have fully thought thought it through. If you if you were to just implode the system, whether or not from top down, bottom up, or if it's just disappeared, what's going to happen? Like, what's that transition period going to look like? Yeah. Right. If you think about it, that's going to be chaos. And what is chaos? It's a breeding ground for usurpation of power. So whether or not it's caused by people opting out, or whether it's caused by you know top down destruction or or bottom up, it, it looks like all are possible right now. Um, I still think you need a bridge to a new system. You can't just say, "Oh, okay, we're going to abandon that." So yeah, I th- I'm a big fan of uh, you know parallel systems and uh, small localized networks, but I don't think you can just abandon the current system. Can you give but me an example we of have- a parallel system, just so I? Yeah, sure. Um, I was just going to say, I, I think that if we could have like cantons, but without the socialism, that would be great. Um, <laughs> but uh, so uh, an example would be like, uh, you know, and I know some people who are working on this, like certain kind of uh, regionalized types banks that are backed by gold and that are not, you know, operating on a fiat system and that are uh, limited. They're not just, uh, you know, operating on this just limitless print money type of concept or on just numbers on a screen. They're actually backed by something. Uh, you know, some I I've, I've know some people who are working on some kind of gold back type of uh, bank system. So that's just an example. I mean, local farming is an example. Like, you know, opt out of the uh, big mass production. And, you know, I, I remember in 2020, just so many people kept saying boycott, boycott. And, uh, you know, things like Target and Amazon and, you know, okay, if if you don't feel aligned and that, you know, feel like something you can do, go for it. But I kept saying to people because I was watching literally just like in my right behind me, you know, the main street of Santa Monica, one one business after the next being shut down. And it was like, you know, generations of family owned businesses. And so I kept telling people, I'm like, do you really care? Because do you think that like Bezos is going to care that you didn't buy from them this year? Like they're they're not going to feel the impact of that. But if the mom and pop shop down the block, if you feel aligned with them, buy caught from them, go and support them. I kept saying boycott, boycott, don't boycott. And I think that's a way of building parallel systems is, you know, whether it be you farm for your own family, if you have the means to do that, you homeschool, you know, your family, you uh, support the the mom and pop shop down the street. I mean, these are ways of building parallel systems that opt out of the big, you know, corporatocracy structure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a parallel uh, institution that you run? Do you, do you have a sweatshop? In your backyard? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. No. I, uh, no, I'm just right now in the information world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's my parallel is just uh, not buying into all the indoctrination. Although, you know, none of us are impervious to programming and I'm sure I've got my share of it. But 
but I'm trying to deprogram myself wherever I can. <laughs> what about aerial acrobatics? Um, can you tell me a story of, of how you got into that and, and some amazing sure. feat that you've accomplished? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so when I, I tried out for American Ninja Warrior and uh, I didn't get picked to run the course, but I was doing the training and it was a great, great experience, great opportunity. I got to meet some of the like top contestants of the show and train with them. And it was super, super fun and really challenging. But I have very, very small hands. So I knew that, you know, most of it is grip strength. And uh, I knew I was going to have to compensate by uh, developing greater strength to to compensate for lack of surface area. And uh, I had remembered seeing when I lived in New York, uh, some people who were dancing from silks. And I was a gymnast growing up. Um, and uh, that, that story was actually pretty interesting, hmm. too. It came out of uh, my mom had this idea to, to develop a balance beam for me um, because I'm blind in one eye and I didn't have hearing aids. And I wore a patch over my sighted eye every other day of my childhood. So I was essentially blind and deaf every other day. Why, why, why the patch? They were hoping to strengthen like okay. whatever yeah. left of the optic nerve. And okay. yeah. yeah, unfortunately it didn't work out quite the way that they had hoped. But yeah. um, so I was essentially blind and deaf every other day of my childhood. And uh, my reward at the end of the week, my grandfather built this beam. And my reward at the end of the week, if I completed it, regardless of whether I had the patch on or not, was that they would make the beam narrower. So <laughs> they would give me a new challenge. And when I was about four years old, I went to day camp and they had a, they had a beam in the, in the gymnasium. And so I was like, oh, it looked familiar. And, you know, I was in a new environment. It was very overwhelming, kind of scary for me. And I was like, there's a beam. And so I ran over to it. And so I fell in love with gymnastics. And when I saw later, you know, in, when I lived in New York, I saw people dancing from these silks. And I was like, it's kind of like gymnastics in the air. I think I could do that. Huh. And when I was training for Ninja Warrior, I remembered that. And I thought that's probably a great way to build grip strength and it would be a ton of fun. And so I tried it and I fell in love with it. Yeah. And where, <laughs> so, what, where does one head in aerial acrobatics? Like, are there different the like strains of? Uh, there are. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So, I mean, silks is probably one of the most common and most, uh, you know, familiar to people because of Cirque du Soleil. Uh, but they're all different apparatus. So there's like the hoop, which is called Lyra, the big hoop. Uh, I actually do pocket Lyra. So it's a very small hoop. And uh, and then I have like a little sling on that. And so, yeah, I dance in that. Then there's sling. So there's sling and hammock. And it's just like it sounds, but sling has a single point. Hammock has two points. So it's, it's like silks, but it's looped. And you can dance in that. Uh, there's rope, aerial rope, which I love also. That's similar to silks, but it's a rope. It's a, in French, they call it cordelisse, which means straight rope. And uh, what else is there? There's, there's pole is put in the same category. And actually, two days after the lockdown, I was supposed to do my first pole competition. And of course, that got canceled. And I was very devastated. Um, I had worked really hard on it. And it really oh, was no. like, it was like a gymnastics routine, but with two vertical bars instead of, you know, horizontal Wait, bars. So you're just like spinning around one and then going to the other and looped. Loop I had one on static like and one was on spin. Yeah. And so I did different kinds of moves on each. Huh. So some of the more like strength oriented moves would be on the static pole. And I did some more of the flowy kind of more dancey stuff on the spinning pole, but yeah. 
Yeah. Then there's trapeze, there's flying trapeze, and then there's static trapeze. And then there's like other really weird shapes. Like I've done uh, aerial heart. I've done aerial cube. Um, you can do some kind of like fun partner stuff. And they have like other weird shapes. And yeah. What's the one where you throw each other around? That's the trapeze? Yes. Do you do yes, that? Do you do the throwing or the I, being I've thrown? I've done flying trapeze. Yeah. I, I, I've done both, actually. I've done the catching and I've been thrown. Yeah. Did you have to overcome like any sort of relationship to the ground being far away from you? Um, yes. So I don't have depth perception. I don't have motion parallax because I'm blind in one eye. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah. So I definitely that that's a bit of a challenge. But uh, so with Ninja Warrior, that was the most challenging thing for me. So the strength things were much easier because I could, you know, build strength. You know, if you don't have it, you can work towards, I mean, not infinite, but like yeah. you can work towards that. But the catch release stuff was just terrifying because I never knew how far away anything was. Oh, wow. So I was always kind of just guessing like midair. Yeah. Really? I, I, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> okay. I mean, did, did you, does your body like have a sense like without vision to that you've uh, noticed that your body is relying on other senses like it just. A, yeah. A, yeah. Well, you can develop a sense of muscle memory. Um, so I can get kind time, of a, yeah. a, you can also, you can adjudicate for depth perception. What you can adjudicate for is a motion parallax. So depth perception, I can measure up against my periphery. Okay. And then kind of gauge how far away something might be. Yeah. You know, it's basically like doing, you know, geometry in your yeah. head. I yeah. mean, not consciously, but it's visual When you walk spatial. into a room or you're trying to avoid like a crowd mm -hmm. or something like that. Totally. Yeah. And that that I can do. Um, but when something's moving, like when you're catching a ball, you're throwing a ball, that I I wow. really struggle with. I, I came in 16th of an inch of going blind because uh, I missed a catch playing lacrosse. And uh, we scratched a 16th of an inch away from my cornea. So oh, sheesh. Oh, wow. You, yeah. you live such a life of danger. <laughs> well, I don't do lacrosse anymore. So yeah. do, you, do you think that you're on any lists yet? So... <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I might. I think I'm on some YouTube list, but uh, <laughs> I don't. Know. I mean, do you, um, do you, do you so, worry about like speaking about these different things, uh, having to watch no, your back or so anything the, like that? I joke because uh, when I was seven years old, the CIA tried to recruit me, so there's like a running joke that okay. you know, like I'm on a list. Um, but uh, we, we they, my parents said no. I, we were very fortunate, I, in my opinion, that that we missed that. <laughs> so they did. Uh, they, they did say no, um, my parents. So, but I don't know. I, I don't uh, maybe, really worry. Maybe they said yes and you were split. And you've yet I, to I've be heard activated. people say that theory. <laughs> yes, that people have, have said that. I don't think so. <laughs> but, uh, but people have joked with me about that. I don't know. I don't, I think most people who have said anything that's dissident are probably on some sort of a list, whether it's an actual list or if it's just, yeah. uh, you know, an AI data point. Um, because yeah. I think we have to be cognizant of how, uh, you know, AI is being programmed right now and uh, how they're using social media to data, data mine. Yeah. And so I think anybody who's ever said anything that they perceive or not even the they, but just that has been programmed into the algorithm as being somewhat uh, dissident, depending yeah. on what that what is what is dissident at that point in time, uh, I think probably is whether or not they're on an official list or not. There's there might be some, uh, you know, potential targeting at some point. Yeah. 
Do you, do you have thoughts about the future? I was just reading about accelerationism before we got on and uh, which is just, uh, it's a very, it's a whole can of worms. Like there's all these different thinkers and stuff and they just kind of suppose that the future is going to be more and more technologically advanced and eventually it's just going to strip away the human. It's just going to kind of plow away the human. Um, so I'm just wondering like when you, when you use these digital environments, like to what degree are you worried about? I don't know the, Apple Vision Pro or, you know, or like Elon Musk or like these, these, uh, you know, like that faceless alphabet um, company like Google and YouTube and it with the, you know, FBI and stuff like that. Like, do you think that it's a hopeful outlook? Uh, no, I don't think it's hopeful. Um, I, I do. I am concerned with it. You know, there's definitely a transhuman agenda. Um, I don't know how many people are aware there's a post-human agenda. I thought that there was just one book on it, uh, the handbook on post-humanism. Uh, but it turns out there is actually several <laughs> books on uh, post-humanism. And uh, what is that yeah. as opposed to transhumanism? What's post? So transhumanism is kind of like this hybrid of, uh, you know, like more like a robot merging with man kind of a bio digital convergence type yeah. of uh, a world and uh, execution. Um, you know, of course, I think people underestimate or undermine how much uh, power and how much has already occurred in the realm of cybernetics. We don't actually even need to have chips in our heads, like the, yeah. the screens and the way we interact with the technology has already altered our brain chemistry and our neurology and the way that we function. Yeah. Um, we think the way we function, the way we navigate. So, for you know, the better, that for has the worse, what do you think? I, I honestly think for the worst. Worst. I, I think it's... I think it's for the worst. I mean, that's not to say that there are no benefits to technology. I mean, I, we we're talking through technology right now. I I love that I can, you know, go to the internet and get like just infinite. I mean, it, at least it appears information at my fingertips. Although, you know, sometimes it's censored more than I'd like, and some yeah. of the things I'd really like to dig into, I can't get a hold of. Um, but you know, for the most part, we have so much at our fingertips, and that's incredible. Uh, so, I, you know, there there are trade offs for sure. But as far as the outlook of the future of humanity, you know, I think this whole transgender uh, agenda is largely to pave the way for transhumanism, which I think is paving the way for a post-human world. So the UN 100, it, I, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, them and yeah. what they're doing. Um, so the UN 100, it's uh, the centennial of the UN, uh, which is at a they're working, they're imagining the world in 2045, which is 100 years since uh, the UN, the inception of the UN. And uh, they are um, working in conjunction with Boston Global Forum. And uh, they are working to create an AI world society. And it really looks like a cyber Satan. <laughs> oh. um, it's, you know, they talk about like a one world religion. That is something that has been, you know, touted quite a bit uh, amongst these you know, the parasite class, if you will. Uh, no, that's what I call them. But yeah. uh, they, they've talked a lot about this. That's a very much in the plans. And when those plans go back, you know, like at least centuries, but honestly, I would say millennia because you look back at like the mystery schools and that's millennia. But it looks like they're, that, that religion is going to be like an AI god. That's what it does look like. And they talk about uh, the 
hub of this AI world society being in Ukraine. And uh, they talk about remaking Ukraine. Uh, this is being done, as I said, in conjunction with Boston Global Forum. Michael Dukakis, the former governor of Massachusetts, is heading this. And he wrote a book. It's called uh, Remaking the World, the Age of Global Enlightenment. Ooh. And it is all, yeah, it's all about having uh, an AI interconnected world an AI world society, Ukraine being the hub, and then these all these like, you know, 15 minute cities, these smart cities, these C40 cities are going to be, uh, you know, kind of funneled into this. Why uh, Ukraine? This hub. I, they, they did a whole symposium on Ukraine, how Ukraine was decimated by the war and we need to funnel more money into it to rebuild it so that we can rebuild the, U, the AI world society in Ukraine. I don't know. I mean, I have theories on it, but, uh, you know, I don't have anything concrete, yeah. but it does look like Ukraine, uh, you know, it was kind of artificially created in many ways. And it does look like it was a hub uh, for some of these you know, centralized powers. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, World Economic Forum kind of connections. And it, it just looks like they're, they, they've kind of, I don't know specifically why they've created Ukraine to be the hub of all of this, but it does seem like there's a lot of ties. Huh. And uh, yeah. Do you have any so. inside information on that weird event in Maui? I don't know why I'm bringing it up, but you just brought up Do that, I have any... that 15 minute city well, thing. Yeah, it was designated as a 15 minute city. And I don't don't think that's a coincidence. East Palestine was designated as a 15 minute city. Uh, you know, who that's did, where they had who that does these train. designations. They're like, ah, I'll take Palestine. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but there is like a U.N. map. Oh, um, okay. That has. Yeah. So when I was doing the, you know, research on the NACs. I was looking at how far back a lot of this goes. And a lot of this is tied to what's called the 30 by 30 agenda. And uh, it, this is the premise that uh, by 2030, which is, of course, you know, agenda 2030. So by 2030, 30% uh, 30 of the world's lands and oceans uh, could not be inhabited by humans or used, produced by humans. Um, and this is a, a stepping stone to what's called the Half-Earth Agenda, which was a book written by E.O. Wilson. He was a biologist and uh, I can't remember what year, but it was a while ago. And it's the same idea, but now half of the earth can be uninhabited. And uh, this was uh, put forth what, Biden, the Biden administration, actually, six days after he got into office, he implemented the 30 by 30 agenda and it got a lot of pushback. And so they renamed it. They renamed it America the Beautiful. Oh. And it's the same plan. <laughs> Which is so, just to regulate people to cities and kick people off of. To, it's to try and push people into these cities. Um, you know, of course, it's it's a lot of things. It's to usurp the the lands and to you know commodify the resources. But yeah, there does seem to be a real push to um, put people into the cities. But I brought that up because when I was when I was doing that research, I found this map, and it was a UN map um, that talks about the uh, you know like the 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 zoning of where it would be like limited use, minimal restricted use, or, uh, you know, complete non-human enter zones, <laughs> like no-go zones. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And then there were some areas that could be used and it was like a couple of black dots. <laughs> it was barely existent. Wow. So, yeah. I, uh, what do you, uh, how do you keep your head on straight when you're looking at all the reptiles that are running everything? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, 
I I focus on things that I like and that I enjoy. Does and the, does he, do you get in, uh, disoriented by like going down and constructing like one after another after another of these pieces of this very puzzle? big yeah this big puzzle of power? No, I think it, it what puzzle of power. Puzzle of power. Um. No, I mean, I think it's helpful. Like you can't, you can't de defeat an enemy that you don't know is there. You can't, uh, I don't think you can empower yourself if you don't know that there are threats. So no. I, I think, you know, to some degree, knowledge can be power. And I think that the information is, is useful and can be helpful. And yeah. I mean, even though a lot of it is very dark, it can also be kind of fascinating. It's like, yeah. wow, how, how do things really work this way? And it's so intricate and, yeah. So, no, I mean, there's a lot of things to be really grateful for. There's a lot of really beautiful things. So I want to preserve those things. And if we can't, you know, I, my my thought is that there's a book, None Dare Crawl, Conspiracy, the end of the book, they say uh, conspiracies can only survive in the dark. And so I always add my tagline is that, uh, and therefore it's incumbent upon the light to shine on it and expose it. Yeah. You know, so I think that's uh, that's really the goal. It's just to, you know, seek light, shine light and... Uh, Hopefully we can preserve the things that are good, true, and beautiful. So, Do you have a, which direction is your beam heading this year? Like, Do you have a, coming up, are you working on a, like a series or a project or what, what's next on your plate? Um, well, I, I'm really hoping I'm going to, I've started to outline it, a book. Um, so that's on my agenda. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to get that done. I'd like to do another cause fest. I think that's really important. I think, you know, that's one of the things that I, I talked about when we did the first one is that I feel like a lot of people will fight against things, but very few people talk about what they're for. Yeah. And yeah. that's what Cause Fest was really about. It's like, you can't really effectuate change in the culture if you're not putting forth. Like, you can tell the kids, like, all this stuff, all this pop culture is degenerate. It's bad. Great. Well, what are, you, what are you offering them in exchange? And I wanted to show that there could be some good, clean fun, you know, that is good art, that is enjoyable, yeah. and uh, that it doesn't have to all be degenerate. But here's an option. So uh, that is really important to me. Um, yeah. And then I guess to uh, keep moving forward with the... Uh, you know, the podcast and uh, we have a couple of different like broadcasting streams we're going to start working with and, you know, maybe do some more like 24 seven type style. And uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to like so, duplicate yourself so you can just be on all the time? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think we'll like play some of the, you know, I don't, a lot of the earlier stuff I think didn't really get any play. So, oh, okay. And yeah. there's a lot of the conversations are pretty evergreen. So, and then maybe bring people on. I don't know. I, Love to see where all of that goes, but definitely focus on growing the podcast and, yeah. you know, working on the different, I'm going to continue with the radio show, do some more of these like solo style lectures and share information and research on deep dives. And yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's what's on the agenda. Has there been a singular book that's really like excited your neurons, like completely like like one of your favorite well one of the things one of the books that like spawned me on this journey um it was like right oh was it 2021 i think it was um was a uh, dr john coleman's book on tavistock and now you can get it for really cheap oh. it's uh yeah now it's like 30 dollars on amazon but initially it was like five, almost five thousand dollars whoa I'm sure that this is an edited version and they probably cut stuff out. But um, but yeah, that was really 
Tavistock was definitely like a rabbit hole for me. And I think it converged so many of my previous um, paths and my previous hmm. schools of study, you know, because it, it kind of uh, the, you know, the philosophy, psychology, uh, entertainment industry, they talk a lot about how they've used the arts to uh, for social engineering and steering. Yeah. So, and they really have. So, yeah. So that was so I was kind of riveted by oh my gosh, there's like a steering committee that's doing this. And they're very much a monster with lots of tentacles. They, really? you yeah. know, the, they're kind of the brainchild behind like the Stanford Research Institute, uh, you know, the Changing Images of Man document, like very much came out of Tavistock. Um, the uh, Brand Institute, which does a lot of our uh, psychological warfare, um, you know, military operations and... Yeah, so a lot a lot of think tanks are working under Tavistock. So wow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I know. know you had so many rugs that you've uh, inspected under. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I've been doing for the past years. Definitely wow. diving, like turning over rocks. Yeah, yeah. So how? Where can people find you? Where are you? They can find me at CourtneyTurner.com, and I spell my name a little differently. It's like. Courtenay, uh, but it is pronounced Courtney, but yeah. it's C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y, T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And uh, yeah, you can find my podcast, my articles. Uh, you can contact me through there. All my social media is on there. And if you prefer other portals for podcasts, then all of that's listed on there too. So Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. I can't remember who connected us, but I'm really glad to have met you. And I'm looking forward to like learning more from your work, about your work. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Um, I think it was uh she goes by Chrissy Meow Mom. Oh, on, uh, oh yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She's a special uh, channel regular. She's been uh, aiding me for many a month now. Oh, awesome! Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. we got to meet in person actually pretty recently. So. Oh, really? Cool. One of your artists? Uh... No, uh, it was at Amfest. What's that? Amfest. Amfest, America Fest. Uh... Oh, okay. Yeah, like a turning point. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think it was in Phoenix. Yeah. So I was there. We ended up having a booth, but yeah, and doing interviews and stuff. So uh, yeah, so uh, I'm there. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, thank your uh, your tech bro for oh, yeah. setting this up. <laughs> He's great because I am not technically savvy at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. So I'm glad we got that figured out. This is so weird. I don't know. Yeah, there's always a glitch here and there. You know, what are you going to do? Yes. <laughs>